Hi guys, welcome back to the podcast. I hope you're having an awesome day. I'm really excited to bring you this interview with Ainsley Vince. I'm sure many of you know who she is. Um, if you don't, she had a very competitive junior career in Canada and was actually one of Canada's top equitation and hunter riders for many years. But she's also had some major career accomplishment, many world games, big horses, big finals. And she also has apprenticed with many different Olympic riders. So it was great to hear all of her wisdom and perspective in this episode. She shared lots of stories about the transition from the professional rider and pursuing this as a business, which of course now she operates Linden Ridge here in Ontario as a coach and as a rider. Um, she also had to face a lot of adversity with injuries and time off of the saddle. So we talked about that transitioning business, you know, dealing with all sorts of things. I also talked to her about running a business with her family and developing horses, lots of philosophies when it comes to teaching riders. And she's been able to accomplish a lot as a coach as well, having riders go to McClay finals. She had a lot of great things to say about training and being intuitive with horses and managing them that way as well. I think you guys will really enjoy this episode. It was full of juicy, good details. And Ainsley was really open to talking about her experience coming up in the industry and what she's up to now. So make sure that you let her know that you listen to this episode. I know she would really appreciate that. Reach out to her if you have any questions. And as always, if you have any feedback for me, you can always reach me at Spring and Act. I hope that you guys have an awesome day or whatever you're listening to this. Maybe it's almost the weekend. Lucky you. But spring's around the corner and I have so many more exciting interviews lined up. Make sure you sign up for our email list at springandect.com. We have lots of fun stuff going on there and I will let you get into this episode. Welcome to the Spring and Equestrian podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Parr, and this is the place to be for all things equestrian lifestyle, horses, entrepreneurship, and inspiration for all of your equestrian endeavors. I'm here to get your insider's addition to what it's really like having a business or career in the equestrian industry and find out how people balance their passion and their businesses. I'm so excited to have you here with me, so come along for the ride. I'd like to thank one of today's episode sponsors, Starline Equine Bodywork. You guys have heard me talk lots about Starline and their course, Stuck Up, is open for enrollment. It's an online equine kinesiology taping course for horse owners, trainers, riders, and bodyworkers looking to add to their skill set. I've had the privilege of checking out this course myself, and I have to tell you, as someone who takes a lot of online courses, it was so well put together and easy to follow. There was also a Facebook group where everyone tracked progress and gave feedback, so if you're interested in learning how to do this on your own horse or you're in the industry and you want to learn how to add it to your toolbox, I highly suggest checking this out. Student numbers are limited, so you can grab a spot for the course at stuckupcourse.com. I'd like to thank another one of today's episode sponsors, the Heart Horse Candle Co. These are some of my favorite candles. This company is owned and operated by my friend Emily Lammers. They're hand poured with a coconut soy wax free of dye, paraffin, and whiteners, and you get up to 40 hours of burning time, and these make the perfect gift for any equestrian. Plus, I just love to fill my house with them. The scent names are also amazing. The most popular ones right now are Show Ring Nostalgia, Shipping Out, my favorite is Unicorns Are Real, 
Also trail rides, spoiled pony, you see where I'm going. They're super fun. You guys can check these out with samples on Instagram at the Heart Horse Candle Co. They're also available in select Greenhawk locations and several independent tax stores where you can find the complete list on Instagram. So many of you guys have expressed that you're interested in getting a position within the industry and Haute Equestrian is your modern source for equestrian jobs. They have recruitment services, business management services, and an essentials boutique. And through business management and recruitment services, they help business owners streamline their busy schedules. Make sure you check them out at www.hautec.com. Um, well, my parents tell me that I got involved with horses originally when I was three years old and I was driving them crazy that I wanted to ride. So they took me to a place where you could just get on a pony and walk around. And I think it started then. Um, I had my first pony. I, we purchased her when I was in grade five um, and it sort of went from there. I rode with a woman named Sue Pritchard as a kid and she had a ton of ponies at the farm and um a lot of them were her own, so they needed someone to ride them. So I had an opportunity to ride a lot when I was young. Um, and that sort of uh, transitioned into horses. I did the same thing. I went to go ride and work for Eric Lamaz when I was 16. Um, and I used to ride a lot of the horses there and it just kept going. That's amazing. So you had a pretty extensive junior career then as well, right? Um, there was lots of different things that you were competing in. Was this something you knew at a young age you wanted to pursue professionally? I don't know, honestly. I think that I was just so immersed in it. I mean, that had been my life. I was working from the time I was 16 years old. I was obviously in school, but I would work on the weekends and I would you know, be at shows whenever possible. I had to miss a lot of school. I got to do medal finals my last year as a junior in the US. So I was away a lot. Um, and I think it was just a lifestyle that I was used to. So when I turned 18, it seemed logical that I just kept going with it. And at that time I'd had a lot of success um, and I remember speaking to somebody and they said, you know, if you want to do this now is the time because everyone knows who you are and you should seize this opportunity and go with it. So kind of went from there. Yeah. And so what was that transition like from junior to professional? What changed? What did you start trying to do as far as building it into an actual business? Um, I think at the beginning, I was just riding a lot. I went to work for a hunter barn in Ontario uh, called Someday Farm, and they didn't have a rider. And I used to do, when I was in my first year as a professional, I used to average between 55 and 60 hunter rounds a day on Wednesdays and Thursdays. And I think of that now, and I can't even imagine trying to do that. But that's what I did then. Um, and it seemed really good because I was making money for the first time in my life felt like. Um, and I got a lot of experience from it, a lot of exposure, which was great. That's insane. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it is. <laughs> so, like cats riding, obviously, then people were. Yes. Them. Okay, cool. Yeah. That's crazy. So what has then transpired since that point in time? What does the structure of your business or career currently look like now? So when I first started out, I was working for Eric Lamaze and I was also working for Someday Farm. Um, I did that for a few years 
Um, in my early 20s, I went to go work for Laura Kraut for a year, which was the most amazing experience ever. Like she's absolutely wonderful as a rider, as a trainer, as a mentor, she's brilliant. Um, when I, I did that for a year, I had a bad accident when I was in Florida that year. And it sort of made me sit down and sort of take stock of my life. Um, and I thought, you know, if this didn't, hadn't have turned out well, I would have spent the last year of my life being away from my friends and my family. And it would have been really sad. So at that point I decided I would move back to Ontario so I could be around friends and family and I would start a business here. So I did that. Okay. And is that Linden Ridge? Yes. Yeah. So what type of services then have you offered over the years there? And what does that look like? So from the beginning, um, I always did full service with Linden Ridge. Um, I wanted to make sure I couldn't figure out, to be honest, I talked to some other professionals that ran businesses in Ontario. I couldn't figure out, you know, business wise, how you would have good help at the shows, but not employ them between the horse shows. Right. So out of that was born full service. Also, I wanted to make sure that the horses were well cared for and that, you know, the people looking at their legs every day knew what they were looking at, that sort of thing. Um, owners are great. And I think it's wonderful, you know, when owners come to the barn and they tack up themselves and stuff. But I do think there's also sometimes an element of knowledge that they don't have because that's not what they do all day, every day. And, you know, things can go wrong. And I didn't want to take any chances for that. I wanted to have the horses cared for as well as possible yeah and do you so you work with your sister then I do Courtney moved Courtney had been living in Europe for a few years and she moved home um I think about six years ago now maybe six and a half yeah and so what are the dynamics like there um well, <laughs> we don't always get along the best, um, <laughs> but mostly the dynamics are good. I think, you know, the business has grown to the point where now it's quite busy and both of us stay busy all day, every day. Um, Courtney does a lot of the organizing with the staff, which is wonderful. She does mostly the ponies. Um, I do mostly, I deal with the older kids a little bit. Um, and we just sort of divide everything up. But when we're at a horse show day, we both run like all day, every day. I can't even imagine trying to get through what we do with only one person. Right. So. Yeah. No, it takes the village almost. Um, is there anything that like when building your own business, once you came home that you ran into, like on the business side, that was tricky or challenging, or you had to pivot with what you were doing? I think just setting it up initially, I remember going through like the different options, like, you know, do people take care of their own? How much care do you provide? How much, you know, what services do you provide? That sort of thing. Um, I know one of the things, a friend of mine that ran their own business told me, quote unquote, you would do much better financially if you build everything on the side. So a la carte. Um, I didn't want to do that because I was imagining people saying, oh, I don't need a lesson. And then going to the horse show and standing at the end gate, covering my face um, because we should have done that lesson. So I did everything all inclusive so that 
you know, then it's up to me and up to the people to just make sure that we're prepared, but it's not ever going to be an option for them. Like, do I really need to have my horse clipped and pay for that? Do I really need to have a lesson and pay for that? I wanted to go in feeling as prepared as possible and represent that from my business and with my name. Um, And the best way I could think of to do that was just to make it automatically included. Yeah. And that's really interesting. Like it's almost attracting the people that are all in and the ones that kind of align with what you want to do opposed to just having people pick and choose. And then does that streamline your revenue a bit then? Because then you kind of know what you're expecting and it's not like this like pick and choose type thing. Yeah. I mean, the the nice thing about that is we know sort of what board will have coming in each month. We know by the number of horse shows and who went to horse shows, we have an idea. Um, which really helps. I think the other, to bill everything a la carte, I think from an organizing point of view, I think would be, you'd have, it would be an X factor every month. Exactly. Um, Yeah. No, I like that. That's really interesting. And and again, I really, I want to, it was really important to me that the correct care was given and the correct amount of teaching was given and all those things. And I didn't want that to come down to people picking and choosing what they wanted to pay for. I wanted it to be something that was automatically done. That makes sense. And so as far as that program goes, as an example, you have an amateur or junior client, like how many lessons are they typically taking per week or per month? What does that look like? It really varies as to the people and as to what they need at that time. Like if they go to a horse show and they had trouble with some things, we'll come home and we'll work on those things right away. Um, If they went to a horse show and everything looked great and everything seemed on point and going well, then we might wait till the weekend, you know, to do one lesson and then go to the next horse show. Um, But it really varies. People ask that all the time when they are looking at coming to the barn and it really varies by individual right now in the winter. Um, actually I was at Nikki Walker's barn in Florida a few winters ago. Um, and she had a guy from Ireland. I think it was, uh, Jerry Mullins came in to teach her. Um, and he would give her lessons over poles on the ground all the time. And I thought that was really interesting because the horses aren't taking, um, anything negative out of that like it's not hard on them physically but it's still it you know the riders practice their eye you practice your lines your stride counting your shaping of the horse that sort of your rideability so in the winter this year we're doing sort of one or two lessons a week we've been jumping very very small we do a cavaletti lesson and a pole lesson and then a lesson lesson yeah Um, pretty much everybody Yeah, no, and I think that's a great way to get all that practice in with it, actually. Like, like you said, it's not really anything negative that the horse is taking away from that. Yeah, no, and I've never really seen that before, and I thought it was brilliant. So we try to incorporate that a lot with what we do. And during horse show season, even, we'll have, you know, Cavaletti Day or, like, Rails Day, but the rider's still practicing their eye and the rideability of the horse and that sort of thing. So it's great. Yeah. Are there any elements that you like to integrate into your management that you feel make a big difference in the horse's health and well-being or behavior in general? I think what we do, what I like about what we do here is the horses are very much individuals. I think people run into trouble when they try to make the horses fit into a mold. Um, You know, they're, they're not cars. 
Um, and I think that's the biggest thing, you know, owners that aren't necessarily immersed in this all day, every day, don't always understand that, you know, they think because they bought this animal, why isn't it doing what I want it to do? Um, but I really think a lot of things like um, veterinary maintenance, like chiropractor, massage, um, just daily care, really go into and how the horse is handled, really go into how the horse behaves. Um, whether it's, you know, in a good state of mind or not, uh, depends a great deal on how they feel physically. And also, I think, again, how they're handled every day. So we're really fortunate. We have really good staff and I'm really grateful to them. Um, and they're very good with the animals. The animals don't bowl them over, but they're not rough or aggressive with them. And it's just yeah. a really nice, nice way of being. So, yeah. yeah. And I have to ask about turnout because this is the question for everyone who runs a big operation. What, uh, what does your barn look like for turnout? So this was something that was interesting because growing up, um, I was at a few barns where they didn't have turnout um, because they didn't want the horses to get hurt, which I can appreciate. And I know a lot of people, you know, buy into that system. Um, I really felt strongly that horses are horses and they're not, I mean, at the end of the day, they're not meant to do what we do with them. We ask a lot of them to get them to live in a, in a box stall and um, to get ridden. And, you know, they're meant to roam around 24 hours a day and eat all day and move all day. And we take that away and be with each other in a herd. And we take that away from them. So I feel like in exchange, we have to give them things back through, you know, veterinary maintenance and management and that sort of thing. Um, I really felt that turnout was important because I think mentally horses need some, you know, free time on their own. So when we built our facility here, um, we made sand paddocks. I think we have, I think, six sand paddocks and they're 45 by 50. So they're very small. Um, and I think our grass paddocks for the show horses are 65 by 70. We very carefully, we had to pull all the soil up, sift the soil, take all the stones out because where we are naturally, there's a lot of stones in the ground. Um, so we tried to provide the safest um, place possible for the horses to get turned out. The paddocks are very close to the barn. If they run at all, we go out and grab them. Um, we try to manage it as well as we can just through size and location and that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. Can you walk me through what the workload looks like for the horses, like exercises, maybe the difference between a horse competing at a high level, like during a, a busier season versus a horse that you just have on the back burner that you're starting to develop? So we try not to get our hunters or equitation horses overly fit because then you end up having to work them down so much of the horse shows till they're in the right frame of mind to go in the ring and be at the top of their game. Um, so a lot of those horses, and again, this is where it comes into very individual programs for each animal. Yeah. Um, the hunters and the F horses usually work about five days a week. We try to keep the horse, the hunters working on like 15 minute work programs every day. Like we walk them, then we work them about 15 minutes. Then we walk them again on the flat. Um, we try not to over jump them as much as possible, which again is where the pole lessons come into play. Um, because the horses aren't, you know, it's not hard on their legs or their bodies to do that. Um, 
the horses at higher levels obviously work six days a week. They have to be a lot fitter to do like the jumpers at the upper level, whatever. Um, so they would work six days a week and we would work on fitness with them. Whereas the hunters we work on not having fitness. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. So I guess it just depends on where you're going with that horse. And yeah, when, um, you know, in my own experience and watching rounds of you riding, I drool over some specific hunter rounds. So I thought I would ask oh. you, um, you. <laughs> <laughs> what characteristics and qualities are you looking for in horses when you're searching for that top level hunter? What do you like to see? I think that horses, um, you know, whether they're hunters or jumpers or ec horses or whatever, they have to possess the ability to want to please. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of what we do, it comes down to like animal psychology. And unfortunately we can't sit the horses down on a couch and ask them about their childhood. So it becomes our job to kind of try and figure out what they're thinking and why and how they're reacting to what and why and how we can do it better. Um, I think with hunters, you want a horse that's as laid back as possible um, in its personality and also that wants to please. And then you have to find the right program for that horse to, you know, uh, produce it into something that's as successful as possible. Yeah. Can you just for people listening, talk a little bit about like movement and features and your preferences, even if it's your own personal preferences when it comes to like a a horse that you're hoping will do the derbies one day, for instance? I think, you know, with movement, they have to cover the ground effortlessly. Um, obviously, you want a good canter and a smooth canter and sort of they want to float along the ground. I think it's really important how they come off the ground that they want to use their back and their neck. And I think when you work them, I'm a big believer in top line. That's like one of my main focuses with them. Um, I think if you can routinely work their top line long and low, that's the look that you're going for in the ring. So if they're used to going like that and they're fit to go like that and muscle to go like that, I think they're a lot more likely to be inclined to do that for you when you ask them to. Yeah, that's such an interesting topic. I, um, I wonder if you have any specific exercises or just things that you like to integrate when you're working those horses on a regular basis in those shorter rides um, to, to build that top line. Like you mentioned, trying to get them long and low. And obviously there's still an element of connection so that there's engagement. But when it comes to like flatting that hunter versus getting it to travel the same way in a course, I think yeah. that's where people get stuck. Um, so I wonder just your thoughts on that as you were talking about it. I think again, they just, it has to become routine for them. Um, and each horse is different. Like we have some horses that we will ride in a bungee, which goes over the pole of the horse sometimes. So they learn to stretch long and low. We have other ones that that doesn't work quite as well. And we'll use draw reins. I have other ones that go in a gag at home to flat daily. And I have other ones that just, you know, you have to kind of get that feel of what they want from what you and what you want from them. And you guys have to get on the same page and work together. Yeah. And when you are teaching that, um, can you speak to what you feel are the more fundamental skills in, and we'll just 
generalize it in, in your riders in general, whether they're doing the equitation or the hunter or the jumper, but what are you trying to instill as routine in those riders then to navigate those courses to the best of their abilities? I think the most important thing that riders can have is a feel. Um, you know, and as you know, not everyone is born with a feel. Um, but I think that riders need to learn to, again, you know, it's psychology of the animal. You have to learn to sense what they're thinking and when and why and um, to try to get the best out of them. And again, you know, like a jumper goes in a little bit of a different frame than an equorce goes in a bit of a different frame than a hunter. Um, but the riders have to learn sort of how to coax the best out of their horse that's possible. I always joke with my riders that like, you know, I teach them and teach them and teach them. And I said, it's going to sound like, you know, the Peanuts cartoons, like the teacher's like, and I'm going to go on and on and on and on about things. And then one day you'll feel it and it'll be the light bulb moment. You'll go, oh, that's what she's been talking about for years. So (laughs) yeah. It's true. And it's the hardest thing I think for anybody to teach. And so when bridging that gap with riders that are like trying to establish feel with their horse, is there anything specific you like to have them do to just like bridge that gap so they actually can get to the point with feel? Is it that you're on those horses, putting them in a program so that they actually go the way they're supposed to so that when the rider rides, they can kind of coerce the same feeling or is there other things that you like to instill? No, actually, that's a good point. Um, We generally do that. Like we try to stay on the horses once or twice a week if we can. Again, it depends on the individual. Some of them we ride more often, some of them we ride less often. Um, You know, sometimes the kids or the adults will ask if we can ride the horse while they're there so we can talk them through what we're doing and why and how. Um, which is really interesting because I've had a couple of people ask me that this year and I've done that and it's been sort of a, a new experience for me, but I really liked it and I hope they took a lot out of it. Um, but yeah, I, sorry, I don't even remember what you asked. <laughs> we were, I was just trying to understand like the different things about translating feel to the rider oh, okay. mentioning, you know, like how, and I think that's really helpful for riders, like visually to see someone with a really good grasp, getting the horse to do what it's supposed to, and then sitting on it after and trying to get the same thing. Like that's probably the easiest visual way for those types of learners. But, and as you mentioned, it was something that you did this year. So um, are there any concepts or philosophies that you have in your coaching style that you feel makes your program a little bit different? I think that the, again, just the most important thing to try to coax out of the riders is that they get a little bit of a feel. Um, I always tell everybody and, and, and that they have a sense of like how to organize, you know, what their hopeful or their intended outcome. Um, I always say to the kids that like the best riders aren't necessarily the best riders, they're the thinking riders. So we'll do lessons at home and I'll say, okay, this is the course, this is the exercise. Now, before you go, I want you to tell me what your thought process is and what you're going to try to do when and where and how, and then we'll see if we can put that all together. Because at the end of the day, a lot of these kids need to be able to go into like write-offs and equitation classes and you can't be there and you can't talk to them then. So you need to know that they can calculate, you know, all of the elements of the tests that need to be put together so they can do that on their own. Yeah, that's such a good point. 
just getting them to think for themselves. Yeah. Um, I love that. So right now, what does your typical day-to-day look like in the span of a week? Um, every day is different. <laughs> um, I mean, right now, this is my first winter at home in 24 years. The first time I haven't been to Florida. So it's new for me. Um, but, you know, I go into the barn in the morning. Some days I have a few to ride. Some days I have none to ride. Some days I have one to ride. Um, usually we don't, you know, we do like a lot of other barns. Mondays are generally the day off. So we try not to have lessons on Tuesdays because the horses had the day before off and they tend to be fresh on Tuesday. So we don't want it to turn into um, an exercise in frustration. Um, So we try to just flat them Tuesday. Some people start on lessons Wednesday. Thursdays, we stay late um, after school because that's the night that we do lessons. Um, And then on the weekend, we try to do one day of like poles or cavalettis and then the other day of like real more realistic exercises for the riders and the horse yeah that and so in going to florida the last 24 years (laughs) yeah so that would that be that you would take a group of clients and your own horses as well and then you guys would just show the winter circuit Yes. So this year, I actually don't have a horse of my own, and I'm very sad about that because I'm really missing that. Um, yeah. But yes, we. I I can't say enough nice things about Florida. I really believe strongly that that is the best way to prepare for the season at home. Um, and again, COVID has changed a lot of things. In a normal year, we would do some shows in Canada, some shows in the U.S., Um, At one point, we generally were staying in Florida, staying through and doing Kentucky spring shows on the way home. That was a great experience. Um, But just, I I really think, I mean, it's great to ride in the indoor and to do lessons and that, but there's nothing that prepares you like for showing, like showing. Right. So I really don't think it's a replacement in any way. Um, So I really hope we're back there next year. And I've always touched wood. I've always had really good success with my kids in the jumpers, in the hunters, in the equitation. And we've always done the same program where we did the winter equestrian festival in the winter. um, And then we started up at home in the summer. Right. And that makes total sense. And I know that COVID has changed a lot of things for a lot of people. So Hopefully we're back to normal this week. I know. I keep saying that and it keeps uh, not happening. So I know it's been a long haul. Um, there's a lot of people that listen to this podcast that are, you know, aspiring professional riders. Some of them are professional riders and trainers. Is there anything that you've learned as far as, I think a lot of people get stuck where <clears throat> they pursue their passion because they do want to have a go as a professional, but in order to fund themselves, they take on clients and uh, boarding facilities or whatever it might be. There's a bunch of different areas of careers in this industry. Mm -hmm. Um, And they, they get stuck kind of in that limbo of trying to pursue their professional pursuits and then also fund them by running a business, which is obviously not all of our first nature when it comes to horse people. Um, So I wondered if you had any advice around that. Um, 
you know, you've built a business over many years and you've had lots of success in the industry. So for anyone listening, I just wondered if there was anything you had to contribute. I think it is like that situation that you described is exactly correct. And it's difficult. Right. I mean, again, I have not had a horse of my own since to show since Darling. Um, and I really miss doing the Grand Prix and the upper level jumpers and, you know, been really focused on the hunters the last few years, but I really do miss that stuff. And it comes up in like Facebook memories and stuff yeah. like that, but, um, and it is hard. And for me, I think the hardest part about the industry is dealing with the people because um, not everybody, again, understands sort of the psychology of the horse. And some people think because they bought a horse, it's just gonna do what they want. And they don't understand like all the intricacies of why horses do what they are, they do, or they don't do what you want them to do, or, you know, they're not machines. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really difficult. I had a client ask me years ago, like, what would it take for my daughter to win medal finals? How much do I have to spend? Oh and gosh. again, you know, I was not being business-minded in my answer perhaps, <laughs> but I was being very honest. I didn't want to promise them something. I said, it doesn't matter what you spend. Like your daughter needs to work really hard and get this down pat and get the thought process down pat and her skills down pat and she yeah. needs to develop herself as a rider. And I believe that was 100% true. Right. Um, but again, from a business standpoint, I should have thrown a big number and we would have gone out and bought a really expensive horse. But, you know, I would never want to promise something that I wasn't 100% sure I could fulfill. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I do think like there's that, there's an interesting balance in the industry where there is an element of the fact that finances can get you a bit further in some areas. Um, and like you said, you still have to understand what you're doing because they're not vehicles and yeah. they're not polarized. And it's so interesting. I mean, I like that philosophy. I had someone on here recently record um it was uh, like horses and energy, basically a lot of energy work. And I thought it was so interesting because I don't think, you know, all that many professionals really deeply delve into that in their programs, but you're mentioning animal psychology a lot. And I think that's something interesting for people to really think about. Um, you've well, had, horses, yeah, you know, horses are herd animals. They're, you know, and they're animals of flight. So they react to things and it's, you know, how they survive to present day is because they, you know, things would scare them and they would run away. So yeah. I think we have to understand sort of the triggers of horses behavior in order to be able to produce the best results from them and make them happy and want to do their jobs. You know, yeah. it's not just, you know, I bought this horse because I wanted this to happen. Therefore it should happen. I mean, they don't know how much you paid for them. They don't know why you bought them or what you wanted them for or, you know they they know if they're happy or unhappy and if they feel they can work with you or not and yeah and people need to understand that 100 percent. and and the funny thing is is that you mentioned triggers i mean every horse is kind of triggered by something different i mean there's yeah. some of the same ones but each one is such an individual as you said so i love mm -hmm. that point um have you ever dealt with a challenge or a lack of self-confidence in your career where you 
you know, questioned what you were doing or you doubted yourself? And, and if you've experienced that, how did you overcome it? And if not, what's your mindset like? Yes, absolutely. I think everybody, I think everybody goes through that. Um, again, it's, it's been, it's a really difficult sport in that the finances that support each rider are very, very different. Right. And when you know, you know, I had a wonderful, wonderful horse named Catch-22. We bought him as a four-year-old. He was not expensive. Um, he was phenomenal. He was such a competitor. But, you know, I'd walk into these classes sometimes and I knew who was out there and what they were sitting on and what they had been rumored to pay for what they were sitting on. And I was nowhere near any of that. Um, you know, and it does make you question a little bit your ability and your, um, you know, what you're doing there at that point. Yeah. Uh, but I think, you know, you have to kind of do your best and the best for yourself and your horse um, and just sort of work from there. I mean, again, like years and years ago when I did American Metal Finals, I did very, very well. I had never done, I qualified by accident. I was riding a sales horse for Eric Maz and I won a medal in Florida. So I qualified for finals. I mean, it wasn't something we planned. It wasn't something, it just happened. And then all of a sudden there I was. And, you know, one of the other trainers was standing at the end gate going on and on about like, well, you know, the way that you ride and you do this and you do that. And he wasn't being very nice. And I was a kid. And that I found that quite traumatic, but I, you know, I persevered and I, I did very, very well through all those classes. Amazing. Um, yeah. and that was that exact situation. Like, I didn't know what business I had being there, but you know, yeah, I was yeah. able to hold my own. So that was good. <laughs> um, is there any, you know, we recognize the hard work that it takes to be successful in the industry and also to just be in the industry in general. Um, I, I wondered if you had any comments on the work-life balance, because I know that you're really deep into it and that you have been your entire life. Do you have anything that you do where you make sure you have time for yourself or is it something that's <laughs> <just> your life? <laughs> I always love to ask this question because everyone has a bit of a different answer. I think that would be a wonderful scenario. I don't know that I do that very well. Um, I think you end up a lot of the time being immersed in this. Um, and yeah, it becomes your whole life and it's difficult. And most of my friends have something to do with horses. Right. Um, some of my best friends now are people from my childhood that were showing and competing against me. And we just became very, very close and we stayed close throughout our whole lives. Um, but yeah, I think the balance is very important. I don't know that I have found it. Yeah. Um, we always kind of, Courtney and I always laugh because we'd have parents come in all the time and say, my daughter wants to do this professionally. And we'd say, tell her no, <laughs> it's a hard life. I mean, it is, it's, it's not easy and it's, it's yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you do it cause you love it, but, um, certainly there are things about it that I would love to change that I don't know that I ever will be able to. So. Right. Right. It's an ongoing conversation on the podcast about 
not necessarily sacrificing your entire quality of life to become a professional yeah. in the industry. Um, so it's always just interesting to hear everybody's take. And just moving into the training front one more time as far as the horses go, what fundamental basics does a young horse absolutely need to have to be successful in any career? I think they need to, it comes down to their attitude and their physical ability. Um, you know, some horses we've seen have been the most phenomenal horses. Um, the style of jump that they had, their ability, but their attitude just wasn't on board. And those horses are never going to go anywhere. And on the flip side of that, like a horse like Catch-22 physically was really not able to do a lot of what he, or Frida that I had more recently. I mean, physically, they weren't the scopiest and they probably shouldn't have done a lot of the things they did, but they did because of their heart. Right. You know? They wanted to please and they wanted to do a good job and they wanted to win and they were unbeatable a lot of the time because yeah. of that. Do you have any horses that stick out in your mind, like your own horses that are, I know it's very hard for everybody to choose favorites, but if I had to say the word. I would say for different reasons. Um, you know, again, Catch-22 really made my career. He was phenomenal. He was such a good guy. And again, not the scopiest, not the biggest stride, not, but just tried so hard to please and was so careful and always came through. Um, Frida won a ton. She was, again, not the scopiest, but very careful and very competitive. And then when I had my accident, my, my youngest sister started riding her and she won everything with her too. Um, Kafka taught me how to ride a really difficult horse in Grand Prix. Um, I had a horse named Uno that I bought from SNL from Sam Edelman that I had ridden when I worked for them. Um, he was phenomenal. Again, such a trier, such a good guy. Um, Darling was great because she just, you knew no matter what you were walking into, she was going to give you her all and she was capable of doing anything. Wow. And, uh, you know, so especially I'd had my accident when I came back, I really needed that. And yeah. she was able to walk into any ring under any conditions and just give it her all. And it was just such a good feeling. Yeah. And I meant to uh, mention that in our outline and I forgot, but you've had, I, I'm not sure if it's just the one accident, but a couple mm -hmm. injuries maybe. And yeah. yeah, I wondered, you know, how you wrapped your head around that. Like, was there, was there any, like of those moments where you're like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? I need to re-look at everything when that happens. Or was it just like, okay, we're going to get through this on to the next? No, I, you know what? I, I have had a number of injuries, unfortunately. So here, the very first pony that I tried, I didn't own a pony. When I was trying my very first pony, she slipped and fell down and I got a concussion and amnesia. That should have been the warning sign. Yeah. Um, but we bought the pony and we persevered. Um, I, yeah, I had a really bad accident in Florida one time. I was not even riding, I was walking. And the groom that had a hold of the horse spun it around behind me oh and threw the cooler on it. And the horse double barreled me in the back. And I had a really bad whiplash injury and amnesia. And then the last one was, I think, six years ago now, six and a half. And the horse fell down with me when I was riding it. And again, I was catapulted into the ground and had a brain bleed and was in a wheelchair and on a walker. And, and I didn't know if I would ever ride again. And that was part of the reason why we gave Frida to Sydney 
because you know Frida wasn't young at that point and we didn't see the point of holding her if I wasn't going to be able to come back right. um, you know and they had a great partnership and they did really really well together and won everything so she just stayed with Sydney until she, her retirement wow. um, but yeah I think I was a year I wasn't allowed to ride for a year and I think it was a year and a month maybe. And I hadn't even tried to ride. And I was at the barn one day and nobody was really around. Like we didn't have any clients here. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to ride today because I was really afraid that if I was terrible when I came back, that people would see me and oh. everything would be gone. So I rode one day when nobody was here. And it was darling. I came back on darling. I don't know why I was convinced that I needed to ride bareback every day. You know? oh my I used to ride her and she was such, because she could jump anything. And I've seen her buck in the paddock and thank God she's never bucked with me under tack once. But I used to get on darling and walk her around the property bareback and my mother would be like, please don't do that. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, yeah. okay. But again, like, thank God that I had her to come back on because I can't imagine any horse that would be better you know, it's crazy, like with all, and it's, it's really, I appreciate you being vulnerable and talking about it because for people listening, it's kind of crazy. You can accomplish so much in your life and your riding career and still question whether people are going to judge or question you when you're coming off such an intense injury. So, mm -hmm. and, and that's not the case, I'm sure, obviously, right? People are well, supportive or. Uh, yeah, I mean, pe most people were supportive. There were some people that really were not. And they're just not um, with you. Like, like, no. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, it's just, uh, it's crazy that, that people wouldn't consider that after everything that you've kind of accomplished, right? So no. it's supposed to show that you can come back for many I always make a joke that I work with animals for a reason, because I find them so much easier than people. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's a huge conundrum of the industry is unfortunately yeah. they kind of come hand in hand don't they <laughs> um but I think we're all like that so we have that in common um lastly I just wanted to ask you a little bit about your mentors and coaches you've had some amazing mentors and coaches so what are a few important pieces of advice that has stayed with you throughout your career from those people Oh, I don't know specifically even. I was really, really fortunate. I, again, I started with Sue Pritchard. She gave me a ton of opportunities to ride ponies. And a lot of, I think, developing yourself as a rider is time in the saddle. And I don't think there's anything that can replace that. Um, so I was really fortunate to start with her. I rode with Eric Lamaze next. Again, he's a brilliant rider. Um, I learned so much. And again, I had a ton of horses to ride there um, and a ton of experience. I went from, uh, when I worked for Eric and I did medal finals, I rode actually one of BZ Madden's horses. So BZ helped me and John helped, John Madden also helped me through medal finals. That was an like unbelievable learning opportunity. Um, BZ really taught me balance more than anything else because I think a lot of how I rode up until that point wasn't necessarily the way that you would want to do medal finals. It was effective, but it wasn't necessarily textbook correct. Okay. Um, and you watch BZ jump in like World Cups and Grand Prix and she never, I mean, her balance is impeccable. Um, 
I went from there to Laura Kraut. Again, I think she's brilliant with horses and training and her approaches and she gets creative with them. And I think, you know, she really treats them as individuals and same with BZ, you know, they really view the horses individually. They don't fit a mold. You have to deal with each horse as each horse is to bring the best out of each animal. And I think that was such a great learning opportunity, all of it. Yeah. Really fortunate. Um, and I'm going to just ask, because you said it, as far as balance, like what can you articulate how you kind of transformed or you internalized the concept of balance differently at that point? Like what was something that you employed in your riding that changed that balance? Well, um, I used to have lessons for 45 minutes at a time in two point and I wasn't allowed to sit down. Oh, okay. <laughs> 17, I was felt like I was about 85 from doing okay. that, but it was such a great thing, you know, and again, you watch BZ and that's how she rides. Her right. balance is perfect. Um, Eric also has brilliant balance, but it's different. Um, he has his own position and his own way um, and it's very effective. But again, to, you know, to do equitation, um, you know, they gear it a little bit differently. So that's something that I do with my riders a lot. We do a lot of two point and stay in two point and stand in two point because your balance, I believe, should go from the top of your helmet to through your ankle to the bottom of your heel. And you should be able to hold yourself there like that. So I love that for everyone listening. They're like, oh, I wish there was a way better answer to that. <laughs> Sorry, guys, you're going to have to get in your two point. <laughs> I love it. A lot of support. Yeah. Um, I think that covers almost everything we were going to talk about today. I don't want to keep you any longer, but I really sincerely appreciate you taking the time to do this. That was wonderful. You know what I was thinking as I was talking to you? The other thing that I do with my riders a lot, and I think there was a question about this on the email, yeah. but do a lot of like um, lengthening, shortening, adding, subtracting, making strides work. Because when they're in the ring and they're doing broken lines or they're doing like a long line or a short line, they have to be able to use those tools and yeah. know what buttons work. So we do a ton of that, whether it's over poles or cavalettis or actual, you know, jumps similar to what they would experience at a horse show. Yeah, but, I think that's so important. Yeah, I was getting into one of my own, well, probably a couple of my clients the other day because there's this... Uh, I don't know, bug going around the barn where they'll, they'll come into a line and they made a mistake and then they're like, I'm, I'm doing that again. And I'm like, no, 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 like keep riding and adjust. What are we doing here? Yeah. <laughs> like, we're not doing this. You can't do this in the ring. So and, I, yeah, and I think that we talk about that a lot too. Like in the ring, you you have to do it the first time and you exactly, have to, yeah. and if you make a mistake, you have to deal with it and mm. to the best of your ability. So when we have lessons, yeah, I totally hear what you're saying because the kids that always want to circle are always, you know, I'm always after them because you don't get that opportunity in the ring. So you better learn how to make it work. Yeah, I'm like yelling, keep riding, keep riding. Yeah. <laughs> you don't get to start again. No, so I, I love that you mentioned that. I think that's really important for anyone listening too, even when they're practicing on their own, like to stop giving themselves that, okay, no, 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 I'm going to do this again. I'm going to do this again because yeah. it, you have to be able to make adjustments. And I mean, yeah. that's what makes a great rider. You're never, okay, rarely you're going to have a, an exactly 100% perfect round. There's going to be small little yeah. 
No, and I, I say that to my kids all the time. Like nobody walks into the ring and every distance just comes up perfectly. Yeah. Every, actually, you know what? This is a, that's not true because that did happen to me once in Florida. That's right, I said I not every time. Only once. <laughs> yeah. But only once in my entire career has every distance been right there. Exactly. Um, so I said, you know, every rider that you watch is always lengthening and shortening. They're, you know, getting these distances to work out precisely correct. But it's not because they just rolled out of bed and that's what happened that day. It's yeah. because they're using, you know, they're manipulating the track of the horse, the length of the horse's stride, the rhythm. They use all those things to make it look seamless and effortless and perfect. Exactly. So I mean, that's that. that's the art, isn't it, as a rider? Yeah, yeah for sure. It. Well, and that's, that's, I think, the common denominator between the hunters and the jumpers. I mean, yes, you know, it's a different discipline. But at the end of the day, to me, the best jumper riders are the ones that just like watch McLean Ward. It's yeah. smooth, smooth, smooth. Like it just looks effortless and it's not, but it looks effortless. Yeah. Um, and I think if you can get that accomplished in the hunter ring, you should be able to accomplish it in the jumper ring too. The balance is different, um, but it's the same, you know, the smoother, the better, the better result. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're typically the most important thing is your track, your line and your distance. Exactly. Yeah. The same thing. We but, always, I always talk to the kids and I'm like, you know, you have three things, track, length of stride and rhythm. So we spend a lot of time discussing these concepts. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, that's well, the same thing in the equitation. It's sort of the middle ground between the hunters and the jumpers. You have to be able to go in and put together a smooth looking effortless round in order to win. Yeah. So, you know, and I'm, I'm again, I'm, I think I, oh no, I wrote this on my own notes, but like, I'm very proud of the fact, like I've had two kids that won medal finals mm -hmm. um, by the time I was not that old. And I really think it's because again, you know, you've got to have all the tools at your disposal and be able to go in and think it through independently and pull it off. I love that. You know? because I, uh, you know, as a mid-level coach, you know, it's not that my kids are not doing any of that, but I've always struggled to, or at the beginning of my coaching career, understand how important it was to make more self-sufficient riders. And I think that's what yeah. you're saying is like really honing in on the fact that they need to think for themselves in the moment. Yeah. I love yeah. that. Yeah. That's such a good point. Um, I that when Miranda won medal finals a few years ago, the first girl that did the ride-off went off course. And we were all set. And of course, you know, they hold the kids in the ring and you can't talk to them. And we were yeah. thinking, oh no, <laughs> you know, and she went in and she analyzed the test and the track and she pulled it off brilliantly. And that, you know, such a good feeling. <laughs> it, it was, it really yeah. was. But that goes back to, again, like my, one of my main beliefs um, in this is that the best riders are the thinking riders. Yes. And I think, you know, for the kids that are able to analyze the test at hand, how to pull it off. I always tell them also, like in the equitation, like calculate your best odds of success. It may not be the flashiest or the fanciest way to do it, but do it how you're sure you can get it done. Because at the end of the day, you need to do the tests. Right. Yeah, that's such but a Again, we have these discussions and lessons a lot. Like we'll say, okay, this is what you're going to do tell me what you're going to do and why. And then I listen to their thought pattern and we sort of analyze that and go through that. So a lot of, a lot of what we do in teaching at our barn is, is verbal. It's yeah. 
yeah. so helpful. What is your thought on like, um, it totally depends really on the discipline. I'm not sure, but like, as far as watching other trips and other writers and like the comparison game with your, with your students, does that ever play into your teaching? Like, are they, are they watching and analyzing each other? Is it all private lessons? Do you make them watch rounds of the show? Do they, you try to avoid that? Like, what does that look like for you? I am a big believer in not private lessons because I think when you have two people or three people in a lesson, they watch the other person go and then they listen to you and that rider, you know, analyze what happened, why, how, how can it be done better, um, that sort of thing. I think that's really, really helpful. Again, I think that develops thinking riders. Yes. Um, the horse shows like when the kids have had classes that maybe weren't the best and they weren't in the ride off, we try to sit with them at the side of the ring and watch the ride off and then analyze what each rider is doing and why and why it's good and why it's maybe not the best and that sort of thing. So that when they're in that position, they can make the right decisions, you know, and maximize their ability to pull it off. For sure. I love it. Well, I mean, we could just keep going on this, but I won't keep you. I, um, I, I really appreciate it. Okay, that's everything for today's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed and I look forward to bringing you more episodes like this. If you have any feedback, you can reach me also at springandequestrian at gmail.com. I hope you have good vibes and good rides this week and I'll see you next week.